Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Matthew Kruer, author of Time of Anarchy. Matthew Kruer is the author of Time of Anarchy, Indigenous Power and the Crisis of Colonialism in Early America. Now, your book focuses on a Native American people known as the Susquehannocks. Who were they? Where, where did they live? That's right. Uh, the, the, the main indigenous nation that uh, features in the book is the Susquehannock Nation. And uh, their homeland is or was uh, what is now um, the Susquehanna Valley. The, the names are, are obviously related. Um, like many Iroquoian peoples, uh, they tended to have large towns that they moved every um, 20 to 30 years. So there are a lot of different sites along the river that um, that served as their, their kind of their main community over the, the course of the 17th century. Uh, most of them are located um, roughly between what is now uh, Harrisburg and Lancaster. Uh, yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the political structure of, of their community? Sure. Uh, so the, the, the Susquehannock Nation was um, kind of a, a, a formation from many different groups. Um, they came together over the course of the 16th century. Uh, many of them um, had migrated south from uh, the kind of the Great Lakes area. Uh, many other ones were already in the Susquehanna Valley, and they joined with the Susquehannock Nation um, either through force or, or through alliance making. Um, and, and the result of this was that uh, the nation itself was a really uh, kind of polyglot, multicultural, multicultural creation. And um, one of the major things that held them together was a commitment to uh, what I call in the book consensus politics. It, essentially, what that means is that th this was a nation and a people that, that didn't have any kind of coercive structures of authority, um, at least not in the way that Eurasian states uh, uh, or usually understand that kind of um, you know, top-down exertion of authority. Instead, what they had was um, different uh, combinations of elder figures, both male and female, uh, who wielded authority because of their reputation, because of the um, accomplishments that they had uh, uh, done in the past, uh, because people trusted them and believed that they would be good leaders. And um, those elders, engaged in a, like a never-ending process of trying to convince all of the people of the Susquehannock Nation that the decisions that they made were good ones. And so um, there are a lot of different observations in, in the, the records of uh, Susquehannock people um, just deliberating on all kinds of different issues that were facing them um, at e extraordinary length for sometimes days at a time. And, uh, and they were known, at least one observer uh, said that um, the, the process of this consensus building was such that uh, if there was any kind of controversial issue, something that they couldn't eventually settle on, uh, build a consensus toward, um, then they would just kind of set it aside, that they actually would, would not go so far as to uh, create uh, a division in the community by making that controversial decision. So, so I think that that, that kind of indicates um, the sort of the the non-hierarchical nature of, of the community and its and its political structure, uh, the sort of the, the way that people naturally rose to the top by virtue of, of certain kinds of, um, you know, uh, if you want to call it like a natural authority, right? Because of their because of their abilities and because of their uh, their histories, uh, rather than because of any sort of hereditary positions or um, or the ability to exert force on people below them. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between the role of men and women in this political structure? Absolutely. Uh, so like many indigenous nations, um, men and women both had uh, important roles to play, both in society and politics. Um, they were, I think they're, they're best described as um, reciprocal roles uh, or, or complementary roles. Um, neither one was more important than the other. Neither was considered to be uh, more prestigious or more powerful. They just operated in different spheres. Um, so men were typically responsible for um, affairs that, that, that were 
they were responsible for affairs that primarily concerned uh, the world outside of the town. So um, mostly what this meant was uh, 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 the forms of, of food production that involved hunting um, and any kind of diplomacy and warfare that involved contact with other peoples outside the Susquehannock nation. And, um, and generally speaking, men were, uh, um, or at least male leaders, were divided into, into sort of two different types. Um, on the one hand, you had um, what scholars usually call civil chiefs or, or sometimes peace chiefs. Uh, and these were elders who um, had a long history of successful leadership and were primarily responsible for um, that consensus politics that I was just talking about earlier. They, they really made it their goal to um, ensure that harmony within the community uh, was maintained through their, their guidance. Um, younger men, on the other hand, tended to be uh, more, they tended to, to fulfill more what you might consider a warrior role. Um, young men were, were more interested in trying to achieve the kind of exploits and reputation that, uh, that male elders had already achieved. And one of the most you know, compelling ways to do this was by serving the community um, through warfare, uh, by successfully defending the community against enemies or by attacking, um, by attacking enemies of the nation. Women, on the other hand, were, um, you know, if, if the male sphere was outside of the town, you know, the kind of the world outside, then the female sphere was the town itself. It was the community. Uh, and um, one of the primary ways that that manifested itself was by uh, women's ownership of land and responsibility for agriculture. Uh, land ownership uh, was so powerfully female related that it actually um, passed down through uh, the sort of the matrilineal, um, through matrilines, uh, right, from, from mother to daughter. And um, they were also responsible for the, uh, sort of the, the governance of each individual household. Uh, the Susquehannock people, uh, again, like many other Iroquoian peoples, lived in um, long houses that were sort of uh, um, extended structures that could house up to 40 people, um, uh, usually related by kinship, but um, not necessarily. Uh, uh, and at the center of every longhouse was a, um, a fire that never went out. It was always tended by somebody in the longhouse. And uh, that fire always had a pot of food, um, what is often called the common pot. The idea being that at any moment, a, a stranger or visitor or someone else from the town or someone from outside the town um, could be fed and offered hospitality from, from the people in that household. And um, so the female elders were responsible for these domestic spaces, right, for um, the food production that involved agriculture and for um, home spaces in ways that also allowed them to exert a significant amount of political influence um, when it came to decision making that affected internal matters within the community. Uh, one of the major points of overlap uh, between these male and female spheres of authority had to do with um, decision making related to what the Susquehannock people were going to do when um, successful war parties brought captives back. And uh, usually female elders were the ones who decided what the fate of those captives would be, whether or not they would be executed or whether or not they would be um, incorporated into the community and eventually become Susquehannocks themselves. Uh, can you talk about how significant a uh, power the Susquehannock nation was? Uh, one of the historians you you reference in, in the book says that they, they should be considered a regional great power. That's right. Um, yeah, so actually it, it's it's interesting that the Susquehannock nation doesn't have more attention from scholars. I mean, they, they certainly are, are mentioned here and there uh, and often feature as sort of side characters in a variety of narratives that, that involve the Mid-Atlantic. Um, but they are very seldom the center of, of focus. And, and that's profoundly strange to me uh, because they were clearly one of the most important indigenous nations in that region in the 17th century. Uh, one of the main reasons for this is just because their homeland in the Susquehanna Valley occupied a strategic crossroads. Um, it was, you know, even before the coming of Europeans, it was already a major uh, kind of trading nexus that connected coastal areas to the Western Great Lakes. And, um, uh, you know, parts of what's now Canada with uh, as far down as the Chesapeake. When Europeans arrived, 
it was sort of, it was the Susquehannock's luck that um, multiple different European groups all tried to set up within spitting distance of their homeland. So um, the, the Swedish uh, set up New Sweden in the Delaware Valley. Um, the Dutch set up in um, New Amsterdam, what's now New York, and also tried to, to contest the Delaware Valley with the, with the Swedes. Um, England, the English colonies were uh, uh, both in Virginia and Maryland, both of which had access to the Chesapeake waters that ultimately fed into the Susquehanna River. And all of these people wanted to trade with the Susquehanna nation. Um, and they competed with each other in such a way that often allowed the Susquehannock leaders an extraordinary amount of leverage. They, they just had, um, you know, the ability to kind of pick and choose which of the, the trading partners were going to give the best deal. They were able to cultivate relationships with Europeans um, in all of these different colonies, uh, personal relationships that often led to um, alliances built on mutual trust and in some in, in some cases actual kinship connections which were crucial for um, the operation of politics in indigenous nations like this and as a result of all of this over the course of the 17th century um, even as other indigenous nations across the eastern seaboard were experiencing really significant upheavals you know epidemic disease population loss um, really terrible warfare uh, all of that also affected the Susquehannock nation, but they actually grew in size and, and power over the course of that time period, in large part because of all of the different connections that they had with Europeans, um, which not only uh, allowed them to sort of, as I said, um, play Europeans off each other, but also then kind of parlay that influence um, into influence with other indigenous nations around them. Uh, in, in the book, you use a term mourning war. What, what does that mean? Sure. So uh, mourning war is a term that scholars use to describe a, a particular pattern of, of warfare um, that is usually is like, like particularly um, applied to Iroquoian peoples, although there are traditions similar to it in, in um, uh, many indigenous nations across North America, uh, or, or at the very least in Eastern North America. Um, and in, in essence, uh, this is all the the basis for mourning war has to do with the emotional basis for um, consensus politics, right? So as I was saying before, um, in order to have a, a, a non-coercive and non-hierarchical political system work, you have to have everybody on the same page. You can't just order people um, to follow a directive. You have to actually convince them that it is the right directive to follow. And um, in order to do that, there is an entire cultural complex that evolved that really prized um, the emotional calm and peacefulness that was needed to sustain those kinds of long-term, um, very patient but painstaking deliberations that consensus required. So the, the flip side of that is that um, anything that disturbed that kind of emotional peace, emotional calm that allowed politics to function uh, could be incredibly dangerous, both to individuals and to the community at large. So um, in, in Susquehanna culture, one of the major uh, potential disruptors to this was, was grief. Um, grief, it, there's it, indications that grief was uh, such an incredibly profoundly destabilizing force that, um, that Susquehannocks believed that if untreated through some manner, uh, if untreated, that the grief could actually um, drive a person insane with, uh, with um, kind of the, that combination of, of um, you know, loss and, and even rage, that they would kind of self-destruct. And um, in, in neighboring uh, uh, or sort of related nations like the Haudenosaunee or Five Nations Iroquois, as they're most usually known, um, there's an entire kind of, uh, you know, cultural, um, a series of, of, of sacred histories and, and stories that, that talk about this process, uh, um, that, that describe individuals who, um, through the process of losing uh, uh, beloved kin, kin uh, folk, really just sort of lost themselves and um, not only lost themselves, but became a version of themselves that was so destructive that it, it could really seriously impact um, their entire nation. So, so this was the sort of the freight that grief had, 
And um, Susquehannocks developed uh, uh, multiple ways of dealing with grief, right? They, they had uh, a whole bunch of different um, ceremonies that they might perform in order to help a bereaved person get over their loss. Uh, but in some cases, um, those ceremonies were not necessarily sufficient to, to restore the kind of peaceful emotional balance that, um, that they prized, that they really um, needed and wanted that individual to, uh, to be able to, to, uh, to maintain. And so the, at the kind of the extremity of this is that um, one possible way of, of healing that grief uh, was by the female elders of the community to call a mourning war. Um, essentially, they would uh, exhort the men of the community to uh, go out and um, find enemies and capture them. Not necessarily kill them, actually, uh, definitely not kill them. It wasn't uh, about um, striking a blow against the enemy per se. It was really about bringing back captive people to the community so that the bereaved um, family could decide what to do with them. Uh, as I sort of gestured to before, uh, the, the major options were that the captive could either be um, killed, they could be executed in uh, a kind of a, a, a ritual form of, or a ritual process rather, of, of torture and dismemberment and consumption. Um, or the captive could be adopted into the community and, and actually specifically adopted into the family as a way of um, more or less literally filling the gap that was left by grief, you know, sort of filling the social role that um, that the deceased person had previously filled, and therefore uh, uh, kind of providing a way to make the community whole again. And so, mourning war was a was a process of um, maintaining the emotional balance that was essential to Susquehannock politics, and it was also a way of um, kind of, you know, regulating foreign relations in a way, uh, uh, in a manner that was um, directly related to both male and female forms of authority. So in, in the book, you talk about the, the peak uh, period of strength for the Susquehannocks being the 1650s, and then in the 1660s, as war with the Iroquois uh, unfolds, it, they begin their decline. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, how that war emerged? Sure. Um, well, so the the Susquehannock nation, uh, or the Susquehannock people, and um, the peoples that that eventually formed the the League of Five Nations, uh, uh, often known as the Iroquois, although um, the, the preferred term for the most part these days is is Haudenosaunee, which means people of the Longhouse. Um, and uh, so the Susquehannocks and the Haudenosaunee had a uh, a historical connection. Um, they, they emerged in the same place. They had similar ancestors. And, and there's, uh, there's some really intriguing archaeological evidence that shows how Susquehannocks and Haudenosaunee kind of commemorated their shared origins um, through certain kinds of burial practices. Uh, uh, in fact, um, commemorating the, the sort of the memory of their, of their origins by um, burying people together from, from different nations as a way of, of symbolizing their um, symbolizing those ancestral connections. Uh, but as they separated, as the Susquehannocks moved south and started um, kind of joining with other indigenous groups that then kind of you know, became the nucleus for this new Susquehannock nation by the turn of the 17th century, um, they went their own ways politically. And uh, eventually, what, what, what really caused uh, the, the conflict that um, reached its peak in the 1660s and 1670s was competition over uh, access to European markets and the, the sort of the ways that European colonial intrusions wound up intensifying um, competition for resources and competition over people uh, um, in all of the indigenous nations of, of the East. And, and in particular, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the major impacts of European colonization in the 17th century, um, well, actually in the centuries afterward as well, but uh, one of the major impacts was um, the intrusion of European diseases, uh, many of which did not have um, any kind of North American equivalent, and so um, found their ways into populations that um, were a little bit more vulnerable to them. And then also spread under conditions of, of warfare and dislocation, when you know, sanitary conditions were not as good, when people were crowding into, into too, small, too small of a space. Um, and, and what you see then is, is, a, is a series of, of epidemics that just hit 
native nation after native nation and often spread from one to the next, either because they're fighting each other and spread it that way or because they're trading with each other as allies and spread it that way. Um, and as you can imagine, in a society that uh, uh, where grief operates in, in this way that, that sometimes leads to violence against, against external peoples, um, the kind of, of, of loss that repeated disease epidemics might cause uh, could lead to just morning war after morning war after morning war. And the more people were lost, the more they needed to be, the, the more sort of, um, the more damaged the social fabric was and the more need there was to heal it through more morning wars and, and further captives. So, so this was a process that, um, that really uh, consumed both the, the Haudenosaunee nations and, and the Susquehannock nation, um, which, you know, in the case of the Susquehannocks, um, they they lasted a little bit longer than um, many of their neighbors against Iroquois attacks, uh, and and that's actually somewhat remarkable since the um, the population of the five nations uh, by the time of the, the 1550s was um, at least double the the Susquehannock nation, and 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 still they they held out longer um, than many other groups, partially because they had all of those European allies, they had access to um, you know, weapons, and they had access to, in some cases, uh, uh, actual manpower. Uh, uh, the Maryland militia, for example, once helped to uh, defend uh, the Susquehannock town from a, a Haudenosaunee attack. Um, but nonetheless, uh, uh, they did, the Susquehannocks did lose ground over time. And um, one of the results of this was a kind of, of diaspora, um, or at the very least, a population transfer because um, the, the, the more that the Susquehannock nation's population lowered, um, many of those people would have died, of course, in, in, in combat or through disease, but many of them were captured and then incorporated into Haudenosaunee communities. And so you had this kind of this actual growth of, um, you know, we, we can't really say for sure how, how many, but uh, given the number of, of people um, that the, the Susquehannock nation lost, um, probably a lot, a, a lot of population uh, movement into the area uh, uh, of, of the Haudenosaunee nations. J just to give you an indication, um, at its height in the late 1640s, the, uh, the, the European estimates of the Susquehannock population were somewhere around 5,000, 5,000 people. Um, and that declined uh, quite precipitously to the point that there were no more than a thousand by um, 1670, so just within a couple of decades. Uh, but at the same time, like, as I said, um, you know, some of those 4,000 people would have uh, been captured and incorporated into the Haudenosaunee nations, and therefore become kind of um, you know Susquehannocks within Iroquois, uh, not necessarily uh, entirely Susquehannock in their loyalties or their connections. Um, but still people who had been born in Susquehanna country and uh, would not have forgotten that origin. Now, in, in response to a lot of these pressures, uh, various bands of Susquehannocks started spreading out. Some went over the mountains into the Ohio country. Others went to uh, the Delaware River Valley and, and uh, others went south into Maryland and Virginia. So for the, those who went south, uh, what, what kind of uh, political community did they discover there? That's a really great question, and I, and I think I've I've um, the work that I've done in this book only scratches the surface to to answer that. Um, all all I can really say based on uh, the sources that I have seen is that it's very clear that that Susquehannocks um, they they definitely established communities, uh, state or you know at least in the short term, um, you know semi permanent communities in the Ohio Valley, the the um, eastern reaches of the Ohio Valley. Uh, which had to be abandoned after a while because of warfare with the Haudenosaunee. But, um, but nonetheless, we're, we're sort of like satellite communities of the, the main community in the Susquehanna Valley. Uh, uh, but there were also people who, who, even if they didn't necessarily settle or create new towns or, or found uh, permanent communities in other areas, they definitely traveled um, far and wide, in part, again, because of the, uh, the, the power that, that European markets gave them, you know, um, as traders, they were very, very much in demand as allies and, and friends, um, and they were able to sort of to, to spread their influence through these kinds of um, 
you know, uh, travelers and diplomats and traders who went, um, you know, the, the, the one that I was able to find, uh, uh, you know, in European documents that went the farthest south, um, went all the way into what is now North Carolina, um, around the Roanoke River, and um, uh, uh, was actually, actually served as a guide for uh, an, an English explorer, um, well, a German explorer who was employed by um, the, the English named John Lederer. And, uh, uh, and this Susquehannock um, named Jack Sedevon, he, he served as a guide through um, pretty much, you know, like the entire Piedmont and Tidewater South, um, took Lederer, all, you know, all the way into um, the, the Roanoke River Piedmont, uh, guided him through Tuscarora country on, in coastal South Carolina, or uh, coastal North Carolina, um, and had the social connections to do this, right? Like was able to find hospitality with all these nations because he wasn't there for the first time. He was calling on people that he already knew and who already trusted him, which was why he was able to get this European stranger the same hospitality that, that he could expect himself. Um, so I think that, that that's kind of a, a really important dimension of, of Susquehannock influence. And, and, in, and indeed, I, I think in understanding the shape of the Susquehannock nation, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily a, a place as we might imagine a sort of a, a European or, or a modern nation state where it has like these, you know, hard bounded borders. It, it was more like a network that um, connected many peoples over a large geographical area. And, and again, a lot of that was, was not necessarily because of permanent communities that inhabited territory. It was, it was partially because of connections between people. Now, the title of your book is Time of Anarchy. Uh, why was this period that you're writing about uh, referenced as a time of anarchy? Yeah. Um, well, so the, the, the title comes from um, two different descriptions that I, that I put together as a sort of an inspiration for understanding this, this period. Uh, one of them comes from uh, a governor of Virginia in the 1680s named Thomas Culpepper. Uh, who described um, a rebellion in Virginia that had um, erupted in 1676 and was over by 1677 before his tenure as, 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 uh, as governor. He referred to it as our time of anarchy, right? When government collapsed and um, there were widespread challenges to authority. And uh, from his point of view, you know, coming in after the end of that, there was always this specter of, of something happening again, there being a, a, another upheaval um, another rebellion and um, the sort of that, the haunting of that, that previous time of, you know, our time of anarchy was something that he very much wanted to avoid. The other, the other uh, description comes from a, um, an indentured servant uh, uh, who wrote one of the few um, direct descriptions of the Susquehannock people. And uh, he described to a European audience, he described their form of government, their, that process of consensus politics, as um, anarchy. You know, from his point of view, there was no king, there was no uh, magistrate, there was no there was no way to you know enforce any kind of decisions. Uh, it was just people all agreeing with each other, and that made you know, as an Englishman in a monarchy, that made no sense to him whatsoever. So he you know described it in in that memorable way as as anarchy. Um, you know, sort of evoking this Hobbesian state of nature. Uh, um, and the reason I, I wanted to put those two together was to sort of to uh, try to describe the period of the 1670s, uh, well, 1670s and, and early 1680s, when you had a large number of um, upheavals um, in both English colonies and indigenous nations most of which involved some combination of, of both Euro-American settlers and indigenous peoples, um, either within the colonies or you know, related to, to the colonies as, as foreign entities. Um, there were a, a huge number of different uh, uh, relationships uh, you know, across the Eastern seaboard. But um, these, th this, this series of, of upheavals uh, went everywhere from the Great Lakes to the Deep South. It affected uh, English colonies from New York to uh, North Carolina. Um, each one of them had sort of, you know, the, it, each one of these upheavals had its own set of internal dynamics 
But part of what I try to do in the book is to show that they were actually all connected. Uh, they weren't just coincidental in timing um, and bounded by their colonial borders. They were, in fact, in part, um, upheavals that were set off by ripple effects from Susquehannock actions and, and reactions from both settlers and other indigenous peoples to those Susquehannock actions. Now, one of the events that you talk about in the book is uh, Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia. How, how does Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia come out of this uh, period where the Susquehannocks are, are migrating around? Yeah, um, Bacon's Rebellion is, um, it's a famously, in, in, among historians, it's a sort of a famously complicated event. Um, the, uh, the historian Edmund Morgan once described it as a rebellion with a multitude of causes, but no cause. Uh, and I think that sort of encapsulates uh, the, the difficulty in, in sort of capturing the, 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 mer the mercurial nature of, of this rebellion that um, engulfed the colony of Virginia um, and, and led to a, a widespread uh, movement to overthrow the government. Uh, but it started in a way that um, seems counterintuitive. It actually started with the theft of a pig uh, in a sort of a historical irony that uh, you know only a comedian could make up. Right? <laughs> the Bacon's Rebellion started out with a pig. Uh, but it really was just an isolated theft, um, or, or perhaps not even a theft. It, it started because a planter named Thomas Matthew, uh, who, who lived and traded with uh, native peoples in Northern Virginia, um, one of the groups that he traded with were the, the Doeg Indians, um, an Algonquin group that um, lived on both the Virginia and Maryland sides of the Potomac. And um, Thomas Matthew was not very good about paying for the goods that the Doegs traded for him. And uh, at some point, they tried to collect the debt that Matthew owed him, and he refused to pay it. So they just took a couple of his pigs, as you know, to call it even. Um, but Matthew considered this to be a threat. Uh, not, I'm sorry, not a threat, a theft. And um, there was a, a sort of a, a, a colonial retaliation for this theft that involved um, several Doeg Indians being beaten and a few being killed. Uh, they retaliated back and uh, killed several members of uh, Thomas Matthew's plantation, including his overseer. Um, a larger force of colonial militia then retaliated again. Um, chasing the Doeg Indians across the Potomac River into Maryland's territory and uh, engaging in a shootout at dawn. They sort of surrounded the Doeg camp and then um, confronted them and very quickly proceeded to uh, open fire. Now, unfortunately for the Virginians, um, through reasons that we are not actually entirely clear, uh, right very near the Doeg camp was a Susquehannock camp. And the Susquehannocks had, had recently relocated to the Potomac. Um, they essentially were defeated by the Haudenosaunee, forced to abandon their home in the Susquehanna Valley. And they sought refuge among their allies in Maryland, um, who sort of begrudgingly offered them, them uh, the right to resettle. And it just so happened that a small camp of them were uh, right in the wrong place at the, at the right time, or the wrong place at the wrong time, um, got caught in the crossfire of this shootout um, that didn't involve them at all. And uh, several of them were killed. Um, the, you know, the, the numbers in colonial sources vary, but somewhere between eight and 14 of them were, were killed, um, which is actually a significant portion of the, the nation's population by this point. Um, you know, at that point, there were only a few hundred Susquehannocks uh, in their main community. So this would have been a sizable portion of the, the adult male population. Um, and what, what resulted from this, this shootout you know, was a sort of a, a colonial panic in, in Virginia. Uh, Virginians were not afraid really of the Doeg Indians. They were too small and uh, apparently not threatening enough, but they were afraid of the Susquehannocks, uh, partially because they had a long history with the Susquehannocks and they knew what they were capable of. Uh, so after, after a period of time, um, the Susquehannocks started raiding the Virginian frontier and attacking colonists in their homes. Um, 
to sort of make a long story short, I, honestly, this is an incredibly convoluted narrative, uh, uh, the beginning of Bacon's Rebellion. But <clears throat> Susquehannock attacks wound up galvanizing a movement among um, certain segments of the settler population who, who essentially were just so uh, angry that their own government could not formulate an effective military defense of the colony that they decided to take matters into their own hands. They um, formed an extra legal militia, which they called the volunteers. They refused to stand down when the government uh, under Sir William Barclay ordered them to stand down. Um, they chased the Susquehannocks uh, uh, where, whenever they could find them. More often, uh, they weren't able to find the Susquehannocks, and they, so they attacked um, Indians within Virginia, uh, groups that were actually uh, um, formally subjects of the British crown and entitled to the protection of the colonial government. These were sort of, these were the nations that were uh, once affiliated with the Powhatan chiefdom of the early um, 1600s and were now smaller, but nonetheless within Virginia and, uh, you know, not, uh, not groups of people that uh, any random settler could just decide to go to war with. Uh, they had the protection of law and therefore what developed here was a, a kind of a, um, a standoff between these illegal militias that were intent on, on defending um, settlers from native attack, right? Defending in this case means by attacking all natives anywhere they find them. Um, on the one hand, you have that group, right? That is very, very uh, committed to this anti-Indian crusade. And on the other hand, you have the kind of the forces of the government, which are um, not necessarily pro-native, but they are pro-law and order, and they will not tolerate this kind of, of illegal uh, usurpation of government authority to you know over the the uh, over decisions involving war and peace. So that's where Bacon's Rebellion comes from, really, is that uh, it's sort of this snowballing series of um, of violent incidents that eventually lead to a large scale confrontation between uh, rebel forces and government forces. Um, Jamestown is taken multiple times. It's eventually burned down. The, the capital of Virginia is burned down. Um, you know, this is a rebellion that consumes the entire colony, uh, uh, so much so that um, investigators who come in after the rebellion to write a report on what caused it and, and, and what the consequences are um, estimated that uh, I think they, they said something like only about 500 people in the entire colony of 40,000 were unaffected by it, right? Like it, it involved everyone. And um, it all started because of this uh, seemingly minor incident with the Susquehannock encampment. Um, and, and, that, and, and that is a sort of a, a, I think a perfect example of the ways that, um, of, of, of what I'm trying to get at with this kind of time of anarchy framing is that, you know, you can't necessarily say that Bacon's Rebellion is, um, the whole course of it is determined by Susquehannock actions, right? There's a lot of different um, players and a lot of different decisions that individuals and groups are making that lead to those kinds of, to that large scale rebellion. But it is all directly related. It's a ripple effect from um, that initial incident with that group of Susquehannocks uh, camped by the Doeg Indians on the Potomac um, and the decisions that they made then in, in relation to their, you know, their larger community as a result of it. Now, Nathaniel Bacon, for whom Bacon's Rebellion is named, uh, you talk about how he uh, developed a, an ideology uh, in terms of dealing with the Native American peoples that would influence racial thinking in, in, the, in the colonies. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and, uh, yes, so Nathaniel Bacon, uh, is an, is an interesting, um, character. He, he you know, as, as you mentioned, uh, he, he is the reason why it's, why the event is called Bacon's Rebellion in, in the history books. Although one of the points I tried to make in, in, in this book is that he's actually not as central to the rebellion as, um, as he is often made out to be. There's, you know, it, we could, we really should understand it as as a much larger, decentralized um, and kind of chaotic uh, uh, group of different factions that are all, uh, you know, in, in a fairly anarchical faction, 
uh, fashion uh, um, jostling for, for power in this, um, in this particular moment. But yes, uh, one of the things that, that he does, you know, uh, in the process of, of creating this narrative, um, you know, like from, from a kind of the, the perspective of someone like Nathaniel Bacon, um, you know, uh, native people are attacking settlers on the frontier, uh, English people are in danger, and therefore something must be done to protect English people. And the logic that he develops from this is not that the Susquehannock Indian nation is a threat or that they should, you know, that, 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 that Virginia should go to war with the Susquehannocks. The conclusion he comes to is that all native peoples are essentially the same. They are all enemies because, uh, you know, they are non-English. Uh, one of the things that, that he uh, starts to, to develop over the course of the, the rebellion in 1676 and a series of declarations and manifestos, he, he starts to develop um, a kind of a, a description of native people that focuses on um, both their, their behaviors and, and their culture, as well as their bodies, um, as a way of distinguishing them from English people, from their behavior, from their culture, and from their bodies. Um, he refers to, to uh, the skin color, for example, of um, uh, Virginia Algonquins, um, the, the groups that were subjects of the king, just you know, much like him, um, as a way of distinguishing them from English colonists with a different skin color. He also refers to uh, the fact that native people um, of the region use paint to, um, you know, they use body paint in order to, to decorate themselves for ceremonial occasions, for um, sort of uh, uh, for, for, for times of, of uh, uh, significance and importance, it, including when they go to war, right? So according to his logic, um, a native person in, in Virginia could easily just paint themselves like a Susquehannock warrior and pretend to be Susquehannock and then murder all of his English neighbors and, and no settler would be the wiser, right? And, and not only that, but they couldn't actually bring the force of law to punish that Virginia Algonquin um, because there was no way to prove that, that, that they were in fact guilty. Uh, so, so the ability of, of, the, of this kind of subterfuge based on cultural practices that the English did not, did, did not um, share became the basis then for this um, kind of portrayal of, of not just Susquehannocks, but all native peoples as a kind of um, under a rubric of, of like radical alterity, of being so different that um, they couldn't possibly be accommodated within the legal structure of the Virginia colony or, or in fact of the English empire. And therefore, you know, like once you take that, uh, uh, the next logical step is that all of these people need to be expelled in one way or another. They have to be um, killed or enslaved, um, or at the very or at the very least expelled, you know, physically, like by removing them from the boundaries of, of the colony. Uh, and so he, he doesn't go quite far enough um, to to sort of to say the sort of things that that modern people might um, might expect when talking about race. Uh, he gestures toward them, but it's very clear that this is an improvisation because in the 17th century, uh, um, Europeans really did not have the kind of, of uh, concept of race that, that developed later on in the 18th and 19th centuries um, that sort of made skin color like, you know, like the master code for understanding um, physical and cultural difference between peoples. Uh, they were often actually much more interested in um, things like religion, or language or culture, right? Which is why those practices of body painting, for example, were, were so threatening. Um, but he does like move in that direction. He does start to talk about native peoples as though they're basically just all the same and that they don't, uh, you know, he ignores the fact that they, uh, that they have different nations. He ignores the fact that they have different leadership structures. He ignores the fact that some native groups might decide for whatever reason to um, engage in hostilities with settlers, whereas others might in fact help settlers against those native groups. Uh, there was actually quite a lot of that. There were a lot of native people in the Virginia area who were in no way friendly to the Susquehannock Indians. And um, 
at the very least uh, 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 helped defend the colony um, against Susquehannock incursions. Nathaniel Bacon threw all of that out the window and just sort of said, Indian equals hostile and therefore, um, you know, and therefore mass violence is justified. And, and this is in fact, um, I, I think one of the things about Nathaniel Bacon that, that's really uh, um, striking to me as a historian is that it looks almost identical to what happens about a century later uh, with the Paxton boys and, and the infamous massacre of the Conestoga uh, uh, Indian people um, because they make almost the same arguments. Um, they, they use that kind of that physical, that cultural difference in order to argue that, <clears throat> that native people, period, all native people uh, cannot be allowed to live within the boundaries of a settler state uh, and therefore any level of violence is justified against them. And I, and I think it's important to kind of recognize that um, there's a really powerful um, antecedent to that, that Pennsylvania moment in the 18th century that has um, this incredibly strong parallel uh, so much earlier um, during, this, during this event in Virginia that is so closely connected to the Susquehannock nation. Now, towards the end of this period that, that you write about, this time of anarchy, uh, William Penn enters the picture and in 1682 uh, arrives to establish Pennsylvania as a colony. And you say in the book, divisions among English colonies worsened with the creation of Pennsylvania in 1682. Why? Right. <clears throat> well, in large part because of um, the dispute between multiple colonies over who had the right to own the Susquehanna Valley. Um, the Susquehanna Valley, like I said, had, had sort of been, you know, when it was the Susquehannock nation's homeland, it was the crossroads for all of these different European empires. <clears throat> but as the Susquehannock nation weakened and then, um, in fact, sort of dispersed in the, in the 1670s to the point that the Susquehanna Valley was no longer clearly inhabited in the way that it, that it had been before, um, all of these different English colonies started scrambling to claim it, claim it for themselves. And uh, in particular, the interested parties were New York, Maryland, and in 1682, Pennsylvania. Uh, and beca just because of the chaotic way that colonial charters were um, drawn up over the course of the 17th century, um, mostly by royal decree or by sort of royal action in a way that uh, sometimes well, let's say, was not always entirely consistent about where the lines from one grant to the next were actually located. Uh, that created a lot of jurisdictional confusion over where exactly the, the boundaries between different colonies lay. Um, so even before Pennsylvania, uh, Maryland had a long running dispute with New York over who, who had the right to um, what's now the state of Delaware, right? Uh, uh, the sort of the, the, the part of the Delmarva Peninsula that was later carved off um, from both of them to, be, to become independent. Uh, Maryland claimed the Delaware Valley and um, engaged in armed action <laughs> to secure it multiple times over the course of the 17th century. New York defended its claim to the, to the Delaware Valley multiple times over the course of the 17th century. And um, into, this, into this mix where you have, you know, two colonies that are claiming the same area which is still inhabited by some indigenous groups, right? Just not the Susquehannocks. Uh, into this already volatile situation, you have a brand new colony. And you have a brand new colony uh, whose charter, um, <laughs> whose charter literally says something along the lines of that its border with Maryland is to be determined in, in its exact, you know, the, the exact boundary because they didn't have the right maps and they didn't have the ability to survey when the document was drawn up. So it was just left indeterminate. Um, and as you, as you can imagine, that, that, is not a great, um, that is not a great setup for an orderly transfer of power. And that's part of the reason why Pennsylvania and Maryland continued to, to dispute that um, the head boundary all the way up to the drawing of the Mason-Dixon line in the 1760s. Uh, it took almost a century to finally work out that, that TBD in the colonial charter. Um, but in the meantime, uh, uh, what, the reason why that's significant here, I think, is because um, 
all like this this jockeying for for territorial control and the arguments for um, sort of legal ownership of of the disputed territory in the Susquehanna Valley uh, are taking place in the midst of ongoing political upheavals and warfare between settlers and indigenous nations, including the Susquehanna. Right during the whole time that Bacon's Rebellion and its aftermath is happening in Virginia, um, Susquehanna attention is actually much more uh, um, direct focused on Maryland um, and, and all, especially the Algonquin indigenous nations within Maryland that the Susquehannocks consider to be really serious enemies. Um, and in, in a similar kind of parallel fashion, you know, Maryland is, is also having its versions of Nathaniel Bacon who are saying, you know, like, we need to defend ourselves against Indians and if the government's not going to do it, then we need to do it ourselves. Um, there are multiple uprisings, uh, one in 1676, one in 1681, I believe, um, where Maryland settlers try to overthrow the government because of, of, of indigenous violence and its ripple effects. So when Pennsylvania comes into the picture, uh, the entire region is, is like just a powder keg. You know, it's really chaotic. And there's a lot of settlers who are eager to um, well, there's a lot of settlers whose loyalty to any given colony is not secure, to put it mildly, right? Um, some of them are willing to overthrow their governments through armed insurrection. Others are just happy to suddenly stop paying taxes to Maryland because William Penn says, well, now you're within my boundaries, you should pay taxes to me. And by the way, mine will be lower, right? Um, that is just a, a, a situation that creates a lot of animosity uh, between the Maryland and Pennsylvania governments before Pennsylvania is even really established. Um, there is, in fact, uh, uh, a, a sort of a, a brief raid that the Maryland militia mount into um, the contested territory around, um, like in the Delaware Valley that William Penn is claiming and, and instructing settlers not to pay taxes uh, to Maryland anymore. Um, a sort of, there's a show of force by the Maryland government uh, uh, that's, uh, you know, to sort of to try to terrorize um, the local settlers into retaining their loyalty to Maryland. And, and part of the reason why I think, again, like coming back to the Susquehanna Nation, the, part of the reason that this is all so important is because ultimately um, in the 1680s, the, the major crux of the argument winds up being, what is the fate of the Susquehanna Nation? Because William Penn, identifies groups, uh, uh, identifies leaders of the Susquehannock Nation through his agents and buys um, the land that he wants. He, he buys the rights to the Susquehanna Valley, at least you know enough to satisfy him. He gets a deed out of it. Uh, whereas the government of Maryland claims the entire Susquehanna Valley by right of conquest. Essentially, they say, we have defeated the Susquehannock Nation. The Susquehannock Nation is no more, and now their territory belongs to us. Uh, but both of these claims are incredibly weak. And uh, in Maryland's case, it's patently false because they're desperately struggling to fend off Susquehannock attacks at the moment that they're saying, this nation no longer exists, we've defeated them. Um, but in any case, this just adds to the kind of the maelstrom of confusion that is uh, uh, enveloping the whole region. Um, and even though, you know, William Penn is, is famously conciliatory toward indigenous peoples, uh, um, in the short term, it, it doesn't, like none of the arrival of this new colony just exacerbates existing fractures within settler communities um, that have been brewing for, for years. And it takes quite a while for that to, to work out. Now, in this time period, the 1682 and 1683, as William Penn is establishing this new colony, uh, these various bands of Susquehannocks who had ranged far and wide start to return to the, their homeland in the Susquehanna Valley. Uh, what changed? Why did they start to return then? That's a, that's a great question. Um, well, as you mentioned before, uh, you know, one of the things that happens in 1675 is that, um, you know, after the Susquehanna, uh, the Susquehannock nation relocates to the Potomac, um, their, their altercations with colonial militia force them to scatter. Um, part of what I, what I argue in the book is that the reasons they scatter is because um, the 
colonial militia of Virginia and Maryland um, try to negotiate with the Susquehannock leadership and then kind of turn around and execute uh, five of their principal leaders. So, you know, coming back to the, like, the idea of consensus politics, right, this is a, this is a nation that um, relies on people of experience and, and, and natural authority, right, people of reputation, to convince everyone to follow them. And if you remove five of those people all at once, then it's, you know, the most plausible um, conclusion is then that you have, like, power devolves to lower levels of less established leaders, maybe none of whom actually have the clout to convince everyone to follow them. And so you have different groups that break up, right? Rather than anyone come to fight over who is correct, right? Because this is a, this is a political system that, that prizes consensus. They just sort of agree to disagree and they go in all of these different directions according to their individual um, you know, leadership or, or kinship groups. Uh, but each of those groups follows a kind of a, a different, um, they follow a different path uh, for how to, to survive and come back from this crisis based on whatever leaders they're following, right? So some of them, as like the ones in Virginia, uh, are determined to strike back at settlers in a very direct kind of, kind of way. Um, others, in fact, uh, probably this, the, the largest group um, just kind of goes back home <laughs> almost immediately by, um, you know, the uh, altercations with colonial militia occur in 1675. And by um, the middle of 1676, there's already a, uh, a group of Susquehannocks that are back in their homeland um, and rebuilding, you know, just building a new town, uh, intent on reclaiming it. But in the meantime, you know, um, I've sort of, we've been talking a lot about the relationships between Susquehannocks and indigenous peoples and settlers, but at the same time, there's an entire component of this time of anarchy that is, in, that is is indigenous nations relating to each other. Um, and, and, and the most important part for this group in, this, in the Susquehanna Valley is uh, the relationship between the Susquehannock nation and the Haudenosaunee, right? Uh, because they have been at war for decades. Um, it is a Haudenosaunee attack that forces the relocation down to the Potomac in 1675. And um, even while Susquehannock bands are dealing with all of these other contexts, that war has yet to be resolved, right? Um, and so it's only through a, uh, a series of councils between the Susquehannock Nation and the Haudenosaunee Nation, some of which colonists have no participation in whatsoever. This is a purely indigenous affair um, that finally kind of determine that some of the Susquehannocks are going to relocate voluntarily to Iroquois. They are going to join the Haudenosaunee um, willingly and just kind of become part of, of those nations. Um, the ones who don't choose to do that, uh, there's, there's sort of a, um, there's a fracas that, that breaks out because the, the groups of Susquehannocks that decide to migrate north to Iroquois um, are kind of, uh, it's actually unclear from the sources we have, but it sort of looks like there's an argument that breaks out over whether or not they're gonna stay together or be broken up into different Haudenosaunee communities. Um, and the Susquehannocks kind of naturally, you know, understandably want to stay together and the Haudenosaunee want to split them up. And so fighting breaks out and ultimately all of those people are, are taken back to Iroquois as, as captives. And um, at least in the short term, don't have the same kind of autonomy um, that they would have if they had kind of moved voluntarily. Uh, However, I think it's important to remember that these people are not going into an alien land, right? Um, they are in fact joining many, many other people who were born Susquehannock and captured in mourning wars and became members of Haudenosaunee communities uh, in the decades leading up to this. And so the groups of Susquehannocks that joined them in 1676 and 1677 are, are in some ways kind of coming back home um, not home to a place, but home to people, right? Home to, to kinfolk and family members uh, that they just haven't seen in a while. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Matthew Kruer. He is the author of Time of Anarchy, Indigenous Power, and the Crisis of Colonialism in Early America. Matthew, thank you for talking with me. Thank you very much. Enjoying this podcast? 
Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.